And so then I came back and there was a message. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I listened to it and it was my publisher, the wonderful Roberta Ivers. And he said, oh, hi, Mercedes. I'm, I'm hoping you can give me a call back. I've got some good news for you. And I was just I, like I knew as soon as I heard that <laughs> message, I just burst into tears and then obviously called her back straight away. And yeah, so she offered me the two book deal. I felt very sorry for her because I was crying throughout the whole phone (laughs) call so she was just having to talk and explain things while I was just sobbing in the background (laughs) (laughs) welcome to rights for women a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers I'm Pamela Cook women's fiction author writing teacher mentor and podcaster before beginning today's chat I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I hope that you're all well. I hope if you're a reader, you're enjoying the fabulous books that are around right now. There are so many out there, it's really hard to keep up with. And if you're a writer, which of course means you're a reader too, so previous comment applies. But I do hope that you're getting down some fabulous words or at least some words on your work in progress and that is coming along nicely. Thank you to everybody who has been listening to the podcast. Of course, I hope that you've been enjoying the latest episodes because I've certainly been enjoying making them. And it's great to know that the interviews are striking a chord. So thank you to everybody who is putting comments on social media and saying this was a great episode, sharing it, all that sort of thing. If you have been enjoying the episodes, I would really be so grateful if you could pop a review of the podcast in general or particular episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever it is that you listen. Send an email via the website Rights for Women and also share any of the episodes that you enjoy on your socials on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter so that other people can find out about the podcast and so that we can continue to grow the Rights for Women community. A special shout-out this week to... Patreon supporters, thank you for your ongoing support of the podcast, which, of course, pays for the editing and distribution of the podcast and a little bit of my time in what I do. And in particular to the latest batch to join the Patreon gang, Sonia Graham, Catherine Hoffman, Elise Luke, Sally Bradfield and Kirsten Nixon. And, of course, to all the continuing Patreon supporters If you'd like to find out more about becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast and receiving the monthly bonuses that go along with that, you can find out more on the Rights for Women website under the Patreon tab. Just before we get on to this week's episode, a little idea of what's coming up. Next week will be a special craft episode with Cassie Hamer. Cassie and I had a great chat talking about her latest release, The Truth About Faking It book that I absolutely loved and was really happy to talk to Cassie about from a craft perspective. And the following week, Rachel Johns and I sit down on the Convo couch and just basically shoot the breeze about our writing, what's happening with our writing, with our books, talking about all things to do with writing and reading and craft of writing. So if you have any questions for either Rachel or myself that you'd like us to include in that chat, which we'll actually be recording next week, make sure that you email me or send me a message on socials and throw the questions out there and I'm happy to include them in that chat with Rachel. So that'll be something different coming up on the Convo Couch. And now on to this week's episode. This week is a new release feature episode with Mercedes Mercier chatting to guest host Ray Cairns. Mercedes writes Just One More Page Crime with twisting plots and relatable characters. As well as writing books, she works in the criminal justice system, providing her with a unique insight into the world of prisons, crime and offenders. Not surprising then that her debut novel, White Noise, is a crime thriller and it's recently been released. She's currently writing her second novel to be published in 2023 
And it's this is a great chat between Ray and Mercedes, two debut thriller authors. So really, Ray just asks some fabulous questions in this episode and really gets down to the nitty gritty of the writing process, as well as the book itself. If you haven't heard about Ray, Ray has been a guest host on the podcast previously, sat on the convo couch with Danuka McKenzie, another debut thriller author. Ray is also a member of my writing group, The Inkwell, and has a fabulous also debut fiction out, The Good Mother. She's a former youth worker who turned to a life of crime writing quite a few years ago now, and Ray writes crime with heart, thriller and suspense novels featuring every man and every woman characters. Her debut fiction, The Good Mother, was shortlisted for Best Debut Crime Fiction in the 2021 Ned Kelly Awards and was recently republished by HarperCollins. It draws on her background as a youth worker mentoring disadvantaged youth, many of them children of the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland during the final years of the Troubles. And if you haven't read The Good Mother yet, make sure you grab yourself a copy. While we're on that, you can score a copy of a double book pack, actually, of both Mercedes' book, White Noise, and Ray's book, The Good Mother, simply by, well, you can be in the running to win that book pack, simply by signing up to the Pamela Cook slash Rights for Women newsletter. You can go onto the website to subscribe to that. You can find the link in the bio for both Rights for Women and Pamela Cook on my Instagram page. And that competition or that giveaway will be running from now, today, uh, Friday, June 23. I think we're on 24 sorry <laughs> until the 15th of July so that's when that draw will be made so a double book pack copy of the good mother and white noise is up for grabs simply by being a subscriber to my mailing list and I'll draw a name out of a hat as I do every month but this month just happens to be that fabulous double book pack so without any more ado let's get on to the chat between Ray Cairns and Mercedes Mercia talking about white noise. Hi, and welcome to this special episode of Rights for Women. My name is Ray Cairns, and it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking with debut crime author Mercedes Mercia about her edge of your seat thriller, White Noise. Mercedes, welcome to the Convo Couch. Thank you so much, Ray. I'm really thrilled to be here. Your book was launched on Tuesday night by the fabulous author Nina D. Campbell. How does yeah. it feel having your book out in the world finally? Oh, my gosh, it feels amazing. I'm still on such a high. I'm still buzzing after, after Tuesday night, after the launch. I, you know, I, I couldn't sleep. I was awake <laughs> till 2 or 3 in the morning, just like lying there, just reliving everything in my mind. It's just I don't think anything can fully prepare you for, for really how exciting it is like you hear debut authors talking on podcasts about their journey, but once you're actually living it, it's just amazing. It's even it's even more amazing than I thought it was going to be. And the reactions have been great. People are loving the book. The pictures of the launch were amazing. Gosh, it looked gorgeous. Thank you. Yes, I was really lucky to have the first author book launch at the new Dimmicks in Adelaide in Rundle Mall, and that space is just beautiful. It's the old Regent Theatre that they've renovated. It's got the beautiful corniced ceiling, lots of space, lots of light, lots of air. It's just, yeah, I was so honoured to be the first one in there. And it went smoothly. The staff were wonderful. Everything was just, I couldn't have asked for, I couldn't have asked for a better launch. That's so special. That's amazing. I was lucky enough to read an advanced copy of White Noise and I loved the fast-paced, twisty story and really liked the strong female lead facing complex issues. But for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it, can you tell us a bit about White Noise? Sure. So White Noise follows Laura Fleming, who's a psychologist at Westmead Prison in New South Wales, and that's a fictional prison. And she faces off against a charming and manipulative inmate. Now, he wants to be released to parole. He's coming up to his time where he, he can apply for parole. And he's so charming and so manipulative He's also very handsome, so he's got that going for him too. So he's basically got everyone in the prison 
on his side and everyone is believing that he's this reformed inmate and he's ready to be released. He's done his time. They've done their job in rehabilitating him. Laura, her job is to assess his suitability, his risk for being released into the community. And she writes a risk assessment and writes up her thoughts and what she thinks from her professional opinion. But she sits in sessions with him and she starts to think, actually, I don't think this guy is ready to be released early. I've got my I've got my suspicions that there's something going on below the surface that everyone else has missed a little bit. So she has to race to find evidence before his parole hearing that her suspicions are true. And as she starts doing that, she starts to fall victim to a series of increasingly personal threats. And then amongst that, secrets from her past threaten to unhinge sort of everything that she holds dear in her life. Yeah, she has a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm interested to know what sparked the idea for the story. So I have worked in corrections for the last eight years and I have always, I love it. There's just so many interesting stories that go beyond the what you think of when you think of the prison system. You think of, you obviously think of all the danger and the tension and everything that goes on in in that aspect. But I I also get to see the wonderful things that happen, the the staff that work so hard to rehabilitate offenders, offenders that come in and and they leave so different and they they don't come back. And so one day I was just, I was talking to one of my friends who's a psychologist with us and she was just talking about some of the things she has to do and how she's doing a, a risk assessment for an inmate who's coming up for parole. And I just thought, wow, that is a huge amount of responsibility to have on someone's shoulders and deciding professionally whether this person is rehabilitated, whether they are safe to be released out into the community, whether then they're not going to re-offend. And I just thought this is a huge responsibility to have on someone's shoulders and I just thought that would make a really, really interesting story. And what happens if I pitted this really smart savvy psychologist against this really manipulative charming inmate who would do anything to be released early and, and who's equally as smart exactly exactly so her pitting her against sort of her equal and then I loved the idea that that he had everyone else in the prison fooled so she was up against this wall of of contention and she was the only one and she had to really delve deep and rest on her convictions to to go against everyone and do what she believed was right. Yeah. Your protagonist, Dr. Laura Fleming, has a lot going on. She <laughs> so does. She's, she's got that, she's kind of having to balance that huge responsibility at work and with her home life, with her daughter and her ex-husband, while also wrestling with the consequences of a traumatic event from her past. So... Yes. You've explained that you have a psychologist friend. What gave you the idea for the story? But what gave you the inspiration for Laura? I think, to be honest, there's quite a lot of me in Laura. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think I, I liked the idea of someone who, despite you know, everything she sees in her professional life, like she she sees the worst of, of humanity. She sees mm-hmm. the people that have done these awful crimes, so awful that they've had to be locked away from the rest of society for society's safety. Yeah. And she sees that every day and she sees what these people do when they're behind bars and she sees the, the re-offending. She sits in sessions with them and she hears their their motivation or their, or their lack of motiva- motivation for their crimes. And she doesn't let that she doesn't let that weigh her down and make her bitter i guess she still has this idealism and this hope for humanity and she still believes in redemption and she still believes that people can turn their lives around and can become better people than what they were and i really loved that that personality trait mm. and that part of her because i think i'm quite idealistic as well and i believe that people people can change and they can better themselves and if they get the right supports and they get the the right everything around them that mm. they might not have had previously that the opportunities that other people might not have had growing up that that they can become that version of themselves that you know that they've always wanted to yes. so i loved the idea of putting laura through a whole lot of traumatic stuff, like showing her that she's carrying all this trauma, she's got all this stuff going on in her personal life, but 
she's still so committed to her job and she's still so committed to doing what she loves despite all of that. She just wants to do what's best for other people and, and yeah. yeah, I really loved that, that character trait, I think. Did she arrive fully formed as a character or did she develop over the various drafts? I think she was pretty much fully formed. I Before I started writing, I sat down and I did a, I did a character sheet. I did her likes, her dislikes, her quirks, that kind of stuff. But I didn't actually really end up using it. I'd found it again towards the end of the first draft and I was like, oh, I didn't really include much of this sort of stuff in it in the end. I just, she just came to me as I wrote and as I kept writing, she just kept developing it's and funny, that is almost that first bit's almost like you were meeting at a party for the first time and getting to know her, and then you really got to know her when you wrote exactly, her. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's sort of, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it happened, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really clever that you had Laura battling her own body as well throughout the story because she has, throughout the story, she has a ringing in her ears as a result of a traumatic event. I loved what it brought to the story. And I was wondering, does this come from personal experience for you or someone? It doesn't, actually. I was researching trauma and what, how the body reacts to, to, to traumatic events. And I read a lot into tinnitus and I thought, gosh, what an awful, awful thing to have. Imagine just carrying with you for everywhere you go, you just this low level ringing or buzzing it's different in everyone mm. who has it there's different levels but I just thought imagine this permanently this noise in your head that you just you can never get rid of you can never have a quiet peaceful head at any point in your life and then when things start getting stressful and you start working yourself up it gets so much worse and it just really adds to adds to what you're experiencing already and makes it even worse and I just thought gosh it would be so interesting and so awful to to be in that position. So I thought I just loved the concept of just adding that on top and it was also uh, it displays physically what she's feeling mentally as well. Yeah, so it was that, a good sort of reflection what, and a good sort of trigger that as soon as she started, that tension started ramping up, that's when her ear would start ramping up and it just would explode into this claustrophobic mental cool being stuck in your head both mentally mm. and physically. And then there were times she actually has to try and think through that. Which exactly. Is, it was very clever. I really I thought it was a very clever addition to the story. Thank um, you. And that's where the title came in yeah. as well, that white noise that's always always in the back of her head. She's just sleeping, thinking, driving, everything. It's, it's there. Yeah, it's, it was really well done. So let's move on to research because you've got a lot of characters in the book ranging from paramedics to police officers to psychologists and you're dealing with issues of addiction and the I guess PTSD as well can you tell us a bit about your research for the book sure I so before I started writing I probably did around a month of really intensive research and of course I still had to do lots of research that cropped up as I was writing. Yeah. Thankfully, because I've got my background in correction, the prison stuff, the that side of stuff just came so easily. It was just basically I sat down and that side of things just flowed out of me. And <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, I just love I love talking about the correctional system. I had to almost rein myself back and make sure I didn't bore people with the ins and outs and the timings of what time inmates get breakfast, what time they're unlocked, their cells are unlocked every day. I thought that was really interesting, like the insight <laughs> into so the prison system and stuff was a really interesting part of the story. So, yeah, you yeah. kept it interesting. You didn't add too much. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, so I didn't really have to do too much on that front, but I did have to do a whole lot of research on the psychology front. So mm. the role of psychologists in prisons and I guess just psychology in general. And I was lucky that one of my one of my good friends is a psychologist in our in our department. So I got to really grill her and ask her all the ins and outs and the the psychology around violent offenders, repeat offenders, assists, all that kind of all that kind of stuff, like how she would approach a session with a with a murderer, how she would approach a session with I thought that was really interesting that she was in a room with yes. you assessing. And him. that's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. It's a it's a 
soundproof. Like it's fully, fully safe room, and they sit in there and they talk to them, and that's that's how they do it. And it's just, I just think it's these people are just so incredible to yeah. to go in there and to sit down and to to do this day in day out. So I also had to do some research into, like you said, drug addiction, prescription drug addiction, the effects that had on the body as well, mm. coming off that off that addiction and breaking that addiction and how that lingers in your life as well for so long after. And I had to do quite a bit of research into domestic violence and coercive control. Yeah. And I wanted to show a, a different side of domestic violence, that more sort of insidious underlying breaking down a person's self-esteem mm. and just those little things that that you might not immediately think are controlling behaviour and then they slowly build up and build up until it's just so normal that you have to take a step back out of that, out of the world to truly understand what what has been going on. Yeah, yeah, because it's so insidious as you said and slow yes yeah yes okay and I wanted I wanted I wanted Laura to because she is such a smart woman I wanted to show that that kind of coercive control that kind of you know domestic violence it can happen to any woman yeah you can be the top of your game you can be the smartest and it's nothing to do with how smart you are but no it can be this this career woman who from the outside looks like you know, she would know the nuances of every type of offending Yeah, as a behavior. psychologist, you'd assume yes. that she would recognise, yeah. Exactly. Mm. But I, I wanted to show that these things can happen to, to anyone and it's, mm. yeah. So I also, because I set it in New South Wales and I'm from South Australia, I had to do a lot of research into the Sydney front as well. Obviously, I've been to, been to Sydney lots and lots, but I started to write this, this book during the pandemic so I couldn't actually <laughs> travel. <to> Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I couldn't just head up to Sydney and do so, just rewalk the streets of Bondi or anything like that just to get myself in the headspace. I did end up doing a lot of spending a lot of time on your Google Maps, Google Earth. Google Maps is amazing for I research. Oh, the fact that you can do the street view and almost walk the streets, it's incredible. Exactly, and that's exactly what I did. I just walked those streets essentially sitting at mm. home and looking around and getting a feel for everything and had to do lots of like little research, like how long it would take to drive from you know X suburb to X yes. suburb during peak hour, what driving along, what the view would look like outside of the car, all that kind of stuff that I guess you take for granted that you can do when you travel and you can just drive those streets and walk those streets and really get yourself into that headspace. So why should readers get themselves a copy of White Noise? What do you want them to take away from the book? I think it's a twisting sort of psychological thriller and explores the themes of redemption and revenge, trust and betrayal, mothers and daughters. Talks about rehabilitation of inmates, which I think is is a subject that isn't discussed a whole lot. If someone commits a crime, people people love to push them out out of sight, out of mind, out of mind yeah. behind those yeah, they're behind those tall prison fences and forget about them. The reality is the vast majority of people that go to prison will be released. And they're just, they're people that will live in most suburbs. Like they'll, they'll be at the supermarket with you. They'll be picking the kids up, everything. And you want corrections to have done their job in rehabilitating them and making them coming out of prison a better person than they were when they came in, hopefully mm. breaking that cycle of offending, making sure there's fewer victims of crime and keeping the community safe. And so I wanted to shine a light on that aspect of things too and just the incredible, challenging, dangerous work that, that actually goes on in the prison system every day that people don't, I guess, get an insight into unless you're in that space. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of the story, seeing kind of the people who are doing those jobs that we don't even think about. And they get prison officers, I find, gets forgotten in the landscape of emergency services. I mean, you've got the amazing yeah. work that paramedics do, that, that fireys do, that police officers do. Like they all do absolutely incredible work. The work that prison officers do is all, also equally as important and as challenging and as rewarding, I guess. And I really wanted to be able to shine a light on that sort of often forgotten 
side of emergency services. So let's move on to talking about your writing. Have you always been a writer? Have you always written? Yes, I've always wanted to be a writer. I, even as a kid, I, I recently found I had this, this little glittery pink diary <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just fi- full of stories, just basically nonsensical stories. They all seem to revolve around a girl with long hair. <laughs> <laughs> still got long hair <laughs> and she had a bunny which I don't have a bunny now but I do have a dog <laughs> so yeah I've always wanted to be a writer and I think it's I think it's funny throughout this publication process I've had so many people message me you know out of the blue from my childhood or high school or saying I'm so happy for you I remember you talking about that all you wanted to do was be an author and oh I was like, wow. wow wow really I don't <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. So the whole process has just been, it's so lovely just people getting in contact and just saying, I'm I'm so thrilled that you, that you, you achieved what you've always talked about wanting to, wanting to do. So what was it that made you sit down and commit seriously to writing? I think so for years and years, I had just been writing when I felt like it, basically, when I when the muse struck, when I was inspired, <laughs> when I had some spare time, that kind of thing. But I started to realise that wasn't actually getting me anywhere. Writing a few thousand words once a week, it's not conducive to to finishing a novel and, mm. and, and getting to through to that publication process. So in 2016, I did... Fiona McIntosh's masterclass, which is a commercial fiction masterclass, which is run by Fiona McIntosh. And when I was there, you do it over five days. And when I was there, she pulled me aside and sat me down and she was like, I really think you should harness your background in the criminal justice system and write a crime novel. Mm. I thought I would absolutely love to. I've read crime my entire life. Like crime was my favourite genre. Grew up reading it. My mum's a huge crime reader, so we just have shelves and shelves (laughs) of crime books throughout the house. So it was basically all I read growing up. But I think, I don't know, a part of that, it intimidated me as well because I'd read so many incredible crime Mm. books. I just thought... I just can't, I can't live up to this. I can't handle all the the plot twists and red herrings and <laughs> everything that crime readers, I guess they they expect and they love out of, a, out of a good crime book. So I thought, oh no, I can't do that. I wrote in some other genres for a few years. So I wrote in, I did a commercial, a couple of commercial women's fiction manuscripts. I did a couple of romance manuscripts, but I sent, sent those off, but unfortunately there was no, no success with those. I got quite a few rejections. But then the pandemic hit and I had extra time on my hands. I wasn't driving to and from work, so I had that those couple of hours extra free during the day. And I sat down and I thought, why can't I write a crime novel? <laughs> I can do this. I, yeah. So I st- stopped letting my self-doubt rule me and... So what, okay, just jumping back quick, what, before the Fiona McIntosh, like what inspired you to do the Fiona McIntosh course? What made you go, I'm going to commit that time and effort to writing now? I think it was the fact that I just wasn't happy with writing being a hobby and something I fit in around my life. I wanted writing to be my career. I wanted it to be something that I could do every day and I recognised that I needed I needed to do something to expand my knowledge and my skills and to also be around other people who were doing the same thing. The community, because yeah. Exactly. Before that, I didn't really have anyone else in my life that wanted to be a writer, so I didn't have that support and that inspiration, that community, like you said, around me, which made it more difficult as well to stay to stay inspired and to stay on track. So I recognised that I wanted to be around like-minded people and that's what I got when I did mm. the masterclass and we're, we're all still all still friends and talk to each other. And there were photos of them at your launch. It was gorgeous. They came to my launch and that was even, there's a massive group of us now because she runs the masterclass a few times a year and now we're all 
piled into this big group on Facebook <laughs> and everyone supports each other and comes out to each other's launches and buys each other's novels, writes reviews, all that kind of stuff. So it's just a wonderful, supportive community to be a part of. Yeah. So jump forward now. You've sat down, you've braved it, you've written White Noise. What was your path to publication? What kind of happened then? So you've had also importantly you've had lots of rejections already <laughs> yes I know how that feels <laughs> um, every writer experiences it <laughs> yes. so, so you've yes. got white noise in your hand you've finished yes it. what happened so I finished the first draft and I put it aside I put it in a drawer for a few weeks and how know, long just... did it take you to write sorry it actually only took me around four months to write that first draft okay but that's because I am, I'm a routine-driven person. I love routine. I sat down. When I decided I, re- I wanted to write this seriously, I wanted to write this manuscript, I sat down and I gave myself a word count, a daily word count of 1,200 words mm-hmm. a day, five days a week, and I gave myself weekends off. So I would wake up at 5 a.m. every day, and that's when my brain works best. That's just I tried out different times to write in the evenings after work, weekends, that kind of stuff. But one, I tried waking up at 5 a.m. and my brain was just on. Okay. So that was my writing time. So I'd get up at 5 a.m., I'd write my 1,200 words a day, five days a week, and finished it in around, yeah, I think it was around four months that, that I finished it. So I put it away, I put it in a drawer for a few weeks, let it marinate, Um, (laughs) didn't look at it in the hope that when I came back to it I'd be looking at it with fresh eyes and I'd be able to see the mistakes a bit more easily through the editing process. So I did that. I did possibly three or four rounds of edits myself but I did recognise that I needed external eyes on it and I needed someone else to have a look at it and and tell me what I could improve on and what was working what wasn't working so I sent it off to a professional editor who did a structural edit on it which was incredibly helpful she picked up on lots of things that that I hadn't even seen because I was too close to it I just couldn't see the forest for the trees and so she gave me great advice I um, implemented that advice. I rewrote it, rewent through all the editing process, and after that, I. How sent long it do you to... reckon that process? How long did that process? So four months to write mm-hmm. the first draft, then the your redrafting, and then off to a professional editor. How long that was that process? That was. That took a lot longer than actually writing it. <laughs> writing it was asking. the easy part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Editing it was the difficult part. That probably took, uh, just trying to think, eight months, I think. Yeah. Yes. So it, yeah, exactly, double. And that was just going through it round of round of edits, like looking at a, a different thing, each edit, copy editing, line editing, structural editing each time and then, going back through it and I can't count the amount of times that I went through that manuscript before sending it (laughs) off. (laughs) And once I'd polished it to what I was really happy and and couldn't see any more tweaks that I could make to it, I sent it back to Fiona and she packaged it up and sent it off to a couple of publishers and then probably... It was only a couple of weeks later. It felt like months. <laughs> I got word back that HarperCollins are interested. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Very exciting. Okay, so you've got interest from HarperCollins. How long then till signing? I think that was about two weeks between so fast. that first. It was really fast and it got it's quite a funny story for when I got the call. <laughs> so I'd been working at home and I'd been getting so many spam phone calls from from mobile phone numbers and I was getting like two or three a day. I don't know what, what was happening. So I got to the point where if I didn't recognise the phone number, I didn't pick it up and I just mm-hmm. thought if they want me, they'll leave a message. If not, it's just spam. And basically no, I never got any 
any messages, it was always spam for all those months and months. <laughs> so I was at home, a number popped up on my screen that I didn't recognise. I thought, spam, put it down, oh, no. you know, <laughs> left the room. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I came back and there was a message. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I listened to it and it was my publisher, the wonderful Roberta Ivers. And he said, oh, hi, Mercedes, I'm, I'm hoping you can give me a call back. I've got some good news for you. And I was just I, like I knew as soon as I heard that message, I just burst into tears and then obviously called her back straight away. And yeah, so she offered me the two book deal. I felt very sorry for her because I was crying throughout the whole <laughs> phone call. So she was just having to talk and explain things while I was just sobbing in the background. <laughs> happy tears, but, happy tears. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah. I fi- finally got to finally got it together after a couple of minutes and yeah. So you signed, how long from the signing to publication? It was just under a year. Okay. So signed around July last year and came out June this year. Yeah. Yeah. So there was lots of rounds of edits in that process as well, which was great because I'm not good at editing my, as in self-editing. I'm not good at seeing what needs to be changed myself, but I love getting editing feedback from other people. As, as soon as I see the feedback, I'm like, yes, of course, that works so well. Why didn't I think of that? Of course I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that sort of comes from my job as well. Everything I write in my full-time job has to go through multiple rounds of edits. So I was very used to that editing process before so it made it a lot easier to to take on board the feedback and and implement it and also when I so astute sorry Roberta Ivers we Mercedes and I share the same publisher and we call her Bert and she's (laughs) just so astute and sees things so clearly absolutely and every bit of feedback she gave me I could just see how much stronger it was making the story right it just excited me that every time I got another round of edits, I couldn't wait to I couldn't wait to see what they were going to be because I just mm. thought, oh my gosh, this is just making this stronger and more incredible. That and was one of my questions for you, actually. Was so you had quite you talked about the themes before of second chances and redemption and revenge and mothers and daughters and a number of other things. Were they all in the book? when you handed it to HarperCollins or did you layer them in through the HarperCollins editing process or had you layered them in through your editing process or were they there from the very first draft? I It was a little bit different for each of them. I think the redemption theme was there throughout. I went into it wanting that to be one of the major themes yeah. that, that I explored. And I think the mother and daughter sort of theme came out within my own editing and I think that got stronger and stronger with each edit that I made. The HarperCollins edits, we changed the character of Peter, which is her ex-husband, quite a bit okay. and we really layered in that coercive control, that those subversive domestic violence mm. elements a lot more. Initially he was a lot more of a, a mild character, I guess. He was on the sidelines just like looking at her wearily. Just, oh, okay. Yeah, a little bit more of a passive character, but we really built that character up and made him a lot more of a subversive character as well. Yeah, because he's a very strong character in the yes, book. Yes, yes. We, we brought him forwards and made him more of an ag- aggressor in our life and another layer of... Which is what editing is, isn't it? It's exactly. Each yes. edit is a new layer and it deepens the story. And yeah, yes. okay, that's really interesting. What was the biggest learning curve in your journey from first deciding to write to Tuesday night when you published your first book? What was the biggest learning curve? Oh, that's a good question. So for me, it was learning to take learning to apply the feedback and actually embrace it. It wasn't that I rejected it. I knew that they were any feedback I got was correct, but I had to learn to really embrace it and enjoy it, I guess. The yes. um, particularly the really problematic things that I had to solve in the manuscript. So, yeah. What yes. was your- I think mine was 
It was learning how much edits, how much a manuscript can change from how you've written it to how it ends up on the shelf and going through all those processes and all those edits and all those tweaks and all those changes and learning to to let go and to embrace that 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 process and trust that at the end of it your book is going to be so much stronger mm. and the story is just going to be so much better having gone through through that process and although it might the story might end up differently to how you'd envisaged it when you first sat down to to write that book that's the process that you go through and that's that's the work that goes into to making a book that sits on the shelf yeah 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 so when you set out to write are you you, you talked about you did a month of research but did you plot out the story or did you discover the story as you went along i'm a little bit of both i know the main plot points that I'm going to hit through throughout, but really only broad, the beginning, middle and end are very broad. And I sit down having no no idea how I'm going to move the story through those plot points. Right. Yeah, so you know where you're headed down. is pretty much. Yes. I know where I'm headed, but I don't know how I'm going to I'm going to get there. So I'll every morning I'll sit down and I'll write my word count and if if my 1,200 words ends in the middle of a scene, so be it. So I'll oh, pick wow. up in the yeah, so I'll pick up in the middle of that scene the next day. And that's often quite helpful because mm. I'm, I've got that, I can go straight back into the middle of the scene. I start with that momentum and then that can carry me through the rest of the, the day's writing. Okay. So is that oh gosh, that's so interesting that you stop. I've heard of people doing that as a way of picking up the writing the next day. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. So is it because of the time limitations or is it just that's what worked for you? Or I think that's just what I found worked for me. I just found that if I did that, because I am such a routine person, that if I did that chunk of words, no more and no less, like I never let myself even do a word less yeah. than the 1,200 words a day, that, that that's just what worked in my brain and mm. allowed me to feel like I'd done the word count, I'd moved the story along and I could jump straight back into it the next morning as well and just And you were never tempted to come back to it later at night and edit or anything like that? You just... <laughs> <laughs> there was times when I was lying in bed at night and I just thought of a great idea or a great sentence or a great way to move it forward, but I didn't. I never went back to the actual manuscript. I normally just picked up my phone and wrote a couple of sentences in my notes section or a couple of ideas at the because I just write in Word. So at the end of my Word document, I've got half a dozen, oh no, probably two dozen random sort of sentences and <laughs> ideas and stuff that just sit at the end of the manuscript that I've got to remember to go back and be like, oh, hang on, I had this idea. I want to include this sentence. Right. Excuse me. That's all right. You wrote in first-person point of view. Yes. What was your decision-making process in that to write from first I person? think for because of the way the story unfolds, I wanted the reader to be really close inside her head and to be seeing everything from Laura's perspective and not being able to have any of the outside of viewpoints being able to understand what's going on because she's so suspicious and believes that there's something nefarious going on with mm. Justin Jones I wanted the reader to only be limited to her viewpoint her thoughts her evidence I didn't want that like the reader to be able to see anything else that might be going on or get mm. get ideas from any other outside character Okay. And I really liked that limited viewpoint as well, mm. that the reader's going on this journey with Laura and finding out information with her and it's it's a surprise to the reader at the same time as, as it's, it's a surprise to Laura. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ju jumping to, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, editing. So I was going to ask you about your typical day, but you've explained how when you were writing the draft you wrote 1,200 words at 5 a.m., Yes. We, did you do the same with the editing? Did you? How did you approach editing? 
Yes, I found that hard because I'm such a methodical person. I was like, okay, so I can't edit a set amount of words a day. I just didn't think that worked. So I ended up doing amount of pages a day. But at the same time, you did it at five? Yes. Okay. Yes, at five o'clock I, I did it at the same time. And I, what I generally do is if I've got a round of edits due, if they're due in a month's time, then I'll work out how many rounds of edits I want to do, divide that by how many days I've got to do it, divide that by the amount of pages. And so I'll work out that I need to edit, say, I don't know, 20 pages a day hmm. in the first round of edits, the second round of edits I'll need to do. 30 30 pages a day so I I sit down and I don't let myself leave until I've done that allotted amount that I need to do and then I'll know that when it comes to the date that the deadline that it's due by it'll all be done right if I just follow that process if I every day put in that work make sure I hit that word count or that Mm. that page count I know that when when I get to the deadline I won't be scrambling I won't be behind I won't be stressed because I've done it methodically and yeah. And got there yeah. at the set time. Who are the biggest influences on your writing? I think from a you know, plot point of view for White Noise, it was my job, my background in corrections. That was the influence for the book. Author-wise, Candace Fox, I love, love, love yeah. Candace Fox. I just inhale everything she reads. Michael Robotham, like I yeah. just you know, anything, uh, anything that he brings out, I would just yeah, exactly. I just yep, yeah, add to cart, grab it from the shelf. I just, I think, I think those two were my biggest inspirations when I was writing. And Candace Fox, actually, when I was writing, did a a, a great. She called it Write Club. Yes. So every yes. Oh yes, yes. So as every was it every Thursday morning? I think it was Thursday. Um, yeah, she would go live on Facebook, and we'd everyone would write for an hour together, and then after that, she would answer questions from the Write Club mm. members. And so that was that it was, was such really a generous inspiring. thing of her to do, wasn't it? Inspiring, it was generous. I learned. Yes. it was. I learned so much. She was definitely a big, a big inspiration when I was writing as well. And I would say that's a pretty good indication of, in my experience, of the author community in Australia. How's it been for you with that? Have oh, you so supportive? I've actually never experienced anything, anything like it. I've just the amount of authors that have reached out to me and said, "Contact me anytime. I'd love to help." Authors that have just said, I've just bought your book. I can't wait to read it. I've pre-ordered. I'll write a review. It's just been incredible. It's just such a supportive industry and there's no competition or jealousy. Everyone just wants everyone else to succeed. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's when one succeeds, everyone succeeds. Yeah. More reading, more readers. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's what you want. You want amazing books to be out there and inspiring new readers and bringing new people to to the genre or to to reading in general. Yeah. So you're working on book two? I am. So I'm working on that at the moment. That should come out around the same time next year. So that's set in Westmead Prison again. It's got the same... Mm -hmm range of characters and this time it centers around a a inmate who's a notorious murderer he committed a really awful murder 15 years ago and at the time never disclosed where he buried the victim's body oh okay and so it start starts out he has been diagnosed with stage four cancer and doesn't have long to live and the authorities at Westmead prison want a last-ditch attempt at trying to convince him to to say where the body, like to say where he put the victim's body yeah. and to finally give the, the family some closure. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's about all I can say no, at this point without, okay. <laughs> without giving away any spoilers <laughs> of white got noise. Me in. <laughs> <laughs> it would be remiss of me to not to ask you two of Pam's favourite questions for authors. So first Mm -hmm. of all, what is at the heart of your writing? I think redemption, second chances. I love 
showcasing a, a damaged woman who is still just doing her best. She's just getting up every day and living her life despite everything she's been through, despite all her challenges. She's a good person and she's just getting out there trying to do the best for others. Yeah. Okay. And what advice do you have, if any, <laughs> for aspiring authors? <laughs> yes. I think my number one piece of advice is to treat writing like a job before you've even got a, a publishing deal. I think once once you do get a publishing deal, your publisher will expect you to write a book or hopefully more than one to a deadline. And so if you've got structure and routine in place before this even happens, I guarantee it'll be so much easier to just slip into that, just slip into that routine and get that, get those words done if you've already if you've already got that 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 routine down pat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also surrounding yourself with other authors or writers or people that are in the same boat because writing can be such a solitary process. You're just sitting in a seat with your computer day in, day out by yourself. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to have a community of people around you that are going through the same thing that commiserate with you when you get rejections, can celebrate with you when you've got successes, no matter what those successes might look like. And just understanding the journey that you're on and helping when if you, you know, get terrified looking at the blank page, when you get writer's <laughs> block or when you just when you're just unmotivated and just dejected. They you can get an edit you back up. and you go, I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because so much of writing is such a solitary process. I think having those people around you is just so important and and makes it just so much more fun as well. Like, having those people is just wonderful. Mm. I so enjoyed chatting with you, Mercedes. Thanks so much for being generous in sharing your journey and all your advice and information. Um, Thank congratulations. You so Thank you. Huge congratulations <laughs> on your fabulous debut. Um, Thank you so noise, much. I wish you all the success in the world and can't wait to see how things go and read the next book. Thank you so much, Ray. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs> <laughs>